The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast, bright and bushy-tailed on a Monday morning on the East Coast after what we might term gut punch weekend in the NBA Conference Finals. The Phoenix Suns in an interminable, controversial, four-and-a-half-hour approximately game four, packed with exciting reviews. Who doesn't love a review? Packed with an out-of-bounds play that they somehow don't review after reviewing everything else. They don't review the campaign out-of-bounds play that would have given the Clippers the ball back down one with seven and change, seven seconds and change left. Phoenix delivers what feels like the game four we've seen so many times where the road team says, boom, punch to the gut. We're up 3-1. Good luck. The Bucks and the Hawks, which is where we're going to start, they're only through three games, but after the Atlanta game one win, I said, I still think the Bucks are winning this series. They roll in game two. Then was game three in Atlanta, the gut punch game, even though it was only game three, kind of felt like it. Atlanta gets off to a good start, delivers a punch. The Bucks slowly, methodically get back in the game, hang around, hang around like Teddy KGB, just hanging around. And then Chris Middleton goes crazy in the fourth quarter. They pull away. Trey Young turns his ankle. Felt like a gut punch. We will see. We're going to start there with one of my favorite guests, one of the people's favorite guests from Sports Illustrated. And I didn't know this until right now. Master of the Doc Rivers panic face, Chris Herring. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? (laughs) You had it. You had it when your technology wasn't working, when you were worried about the technology. You logged in and I saw it. You were calm. Someone, someone who doesn't know you as well would have thought you were calm, but I saw it in your eyes. I saw it in your eyes, the panic in your eyes. Anyone who podcasts with me regular enough, regularly enough sees that face all too often just because, um, as my folks at Sports Illustrated know, the podcast equipment, I feel like every week is a new – it's like a weather pattern where it's, it's a new thing every week. And, uh, yeah, I, I looked at your face. I looked at your face, and I saw Chris Paul – trying to draw a foul, heaving the ball from 75 feet away in Oklahoma City. I saw it all flash right be- – I saw Josh Smith hit a three-pointer. It all flashed right before my eyes. <laughs> Josh Smith three-pointer. That the, the likelihood of all my stuff working at the same time, batteries, SD card, microphone, everything being plugged in, me remembering to hit record is like the probability of a Josh Smith three-pointer actually going in. So it makes – that's a pretty fitting uh, analogy there, I think. Let's start with Bucks Hawks. Um, the Bucks are up two one. They are plus forty two for the series. They are holding the Hawks to one hundred and three points per one hundred possessions, and the Hawks are minus thirty two with Trey Young on the floor. So it's not just you know they're losing the Trey. The Trey Young sits on the bench minutes. Um, what struck you about Game Three? You can go anywhere you want with this, and sort of how do you, how are you feeling about the series as Atlanta now faces without home court advantage? Now the Bucks have stolen it back. A, an absolute must win Game Four tomorrow night. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things that stand out. Obviously, the Trey Young injury, which um, that felt devastating before we even knew exactly what it was, how serious it was, um, and was really, really impressed that Atlanta hung in there without him, that they took the lead without him. I think they were up five when he came back. Um, you know, and so you were hoping that you, you figured you would know really quickly whether he had really anything left to give after that. And I think he had a play where he got to the basket and then he was late coming back the other way in transition. And you're like, oh no, you know, that he's, you knew he wasn't completely right. 
um, the fact that he needed to go. You back. know what? You know what it was for me when Middleton just walked up on the right wing and Trey was on him, and Middleton was like, "Oh, he's ten feet away from me." And Trey kind of looked around like, "Can someone switch?" Because I don't really want to deal with this. Yep. And Chris and Chris just pulled up. Was like, "Oh, I'm wide open. I'm going to shoot a three, and I'm on fire." That was like, "Ooh, Trey is not in a good space." Right. And and you think about too, like how good Atlanta's been defensively at being able to kind of hide Trey from being hunted like that. And um, so that that fundamentally changes a lot. I think most of us are going to be focused on, you know, what they lose offensively, but does it make a wounded duck even more wounded, you know, defensively? And does it make them easier to kind of chase and hunt? So, so that was the one thing. And then the other, um, even before that, which, you know, like we said, obviously Atlanta was even less at full strength when, when that happened. Um, just early in the game that, you know, Atlanta kept punching and punching and punching and delivering some pretty good blows and the Bucks would come back each time. And uh, there were pretty good indications in this game already that, you know, when Atlanta was six of 14 from three or whatever they were at one point in the first half and the Bucks were just kind of ice cold from there, that Atlanta did not really pull away at any point. You know, they'd be up by 12 or whatever they'd be up and then You'd look up and the Bucks would be right back in it. I think the Bucks closed the first half on a really, really nice run. And I think that says something about the fact that they just don't go away. Obviously, the Hawks were very good at doing that against the Sixers as well. Um, down 18, down 26, you know, in consecutive games and then came back to win those. But, um, you know, it was nice to see the Bucks just kind of hang in there. And, and obviously, when they fell behind by five, while Trey was out, just to, to kind of keep going at it. And, and Middleton was just incredible. I know he was struggling earlier in the series, but um, that dynamic, you know, Giannis talked about it after the game, that dynamic where Giannis is clearly the best player that they have, but that Middleton is their closer, can be their closer as often as he is with the types of shots he takes, obviously a very different game than Giannis has. It's just a really cool dynamic. So I guess those were the two or three things that stood out to me, but um, yeah, it feels pretty, (laughs) it's always pretty important to try to avoid going down three, one, but here, in particular, it just seems massive given that they'll be going back to to um, Milwaukee and the fact that, you know, Trey is, is not 100%, probably won't be for the next game. Um, big, big win for Milwaukee to come up big at the end there. Let's talk about Giannis because you, you mentioned the Middleton closer role, and, I, and I've been talking about this all season, and it's been a gradual transformation, and I think the Nets matchup accelerated it. Giannis, to his credit, has accepted this role and has said, look, if I need to essentially function as a center and screen and dive over and over, and yeah, I'll get my ISOs on the left wing over there and in my sweet spot, and I'll do okay on that, but I'm going to be a screen setter, which by the way, it's not the most glamorous part of the NBA. You'll get a lob here or there, especially if you're honest, you'll get a lob, you'll get an offensive rebound. It's not the most glamorous thing. If that's the best, and the numbers show it, if that's the best for the team, I will do that. And it's marked a sort of evolution in his role to the appropriate place, I think. And Giannis, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I, 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 the lack of the jumper, the free throws. And by the way, I really enjoy the crowd counting on the free throws. And I see people online like, well, they're starting to count too early. It only starts when they just let them have fun. He's violating the rule. Let them have fun. Let them enforce a rule that the NBA has chosen not to enforce. And then, of course, the NBA gets mad at the fans for doing that because it's embarrassing to everyone involved. So we focus on that. We focus on the lack of a jumper. Every time he has a crunch time blunder, which if you're in crunch time all the time because your team is so good, you're playing late in the playoffs. You're going to drop a ball at the end of game five against Brooklyn every once in a while. 
Giannis for the playoffs, 29 points, 13 rebounds. That's number one among all players. Five and a half assists, shooting 62% on twos. Let's not really talk about the threes or the free throws. Um, he is having a phenomenal playoffs. And we have this thing where, again, every time he has a blunder, the memes come like, oh, Giannis has no bag. Look at the Giannis's lack of bag. Look, I don't know. I don't have any bag, but I know you got some bag if you're averaging 30 in the playoffs on 62% shooting from two, playing great defense across every position. Yeah, sometimes it looks uncomfortable guarding Trey on switches and all that. It's Trey Young. That happens. Like, he's a, a little slippery star. Uh, I think Giannis has been absolutely phenomenal. It's time to stop nitpicking. Like, the nitpicking is okay. That's part of the deal. When you're the best player on the team and you're playing at the highest stages, the nitpicking is part of the deal, right? People are going to expect a reliable jump shot. People are going to respect this and that. The guy is having an incredible playoffs, and the Bucs are, are where they were two years ago, which is two wins away from the finals. Can I give you a good Giannis stat, Chris? Sure. Giannis, and, and, I, and I took note of it last night. He played the whole third quarter last night, and he's done that a couple times in these playoffs against the Nets too. And, and, and I decided, let me see his minutes. Giannis has cracked 40 minutes seven times already in the playoffs. How many times do you think he cracked 40 minutes in the playoffs combined in 2019 when they made the conference finals and last year in the bubble where they, you know, didn't make the conference finals? I'll give you maybe one or two because I know that was one of the things I harped on Bud about constantly. And I was always confused why they would needle him and stick him at 35, 36 as if he was going to spontaneously combust if he went 38 or 39. Two. Okay. Two times. Okay. One was a double overtime game in Toronto. Wow. And the second, the second was the season on the line game six loss in Toronto. Yep. So that's what it took in previous years for Giannis to play 40 minutes. Maybe it's Bud. Maybe something has changed with his body or his conditioning. I don't know, but I know Giannis sometimes plays the whole third quarter, sometimes comes out for like 45 seconds, pops right back in. It turns out playing your best player, the two-time MVP, <laughs> a whole ton of minutes is really really helpful when you're trying to win playoff games yeah no I'll, I'll go back to the beginning of your your point um you know i i wrote a piece and it was interesting because i even kind of framed the piece this way um go back to that game what was it i guess it was game five of the net series where Giannis, i think finished with like 32 or 34 had all the rebounds he normally has but was just getting pilloried by everybody because you know at the end of the game He's either not wanting to shoot or he's taking jumpers. You know, James Harden is waving off the help and the double team down in the post, and Giannis tries to shoot a fadeaway instead of going right at an injured James Harden. Um, and, you know, and that was also the game that Kevin Durant just went off. And, um, you know, and had to go off and had to play the full 48 or whatever Durant had done that game. And so it became really easy to kind of pit the two of them against each other and Look at all the stuff Durant can do, you know, one year removed or, you know, full season removed from the, the Achilles and he's by himself and blah, 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 blah. And Giannis has won two MVPs. And, you know, I was critical on that story too. But I think the way we even headlined the story that I wrote after that game was that, um, you know, there's really nobody like Giannis. And that's both good and it's, if you want to call it bad in some ways, it has its negatives too, where Giannis is not necessarily a guy that is completely comfortable or completely used to guarding the other team's best player possession after possession after possession on the wing, whether it's Durant, if he has to try to take Trey, 
that's different than somebody like what we saw with LeBron. You know, we've seen him do that where he had to guard Durant and go back 10 years ago, he had to guard Derrick Rose in that MVP season and locked him down. Uh, We've seen Kawhi and Paul George have to do that. So it's different from that standpoint. It's different from the standpoint that Giannis obviously is not someone that you're extremely, extremely comfortable with taking jumper after jumper. Um, We're used to seeing. No, I'm I'm extremely uncomfortable. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, So it's it's, it's one of those things where we expect that of two-time MVPs. We expect that of guys that, you know, that have the reputation that he has, the the sort of accolades that he has, but he's not a typical. And and part of the reason we love what he can do is because he's not typical at all. We call him the freak for a reason. So I I think you just kind of have to live with some of that. We also have to remember he's 26. This is an age where most of the the biggest names in the league have not won a championship by that point. Giannis didn't even start playing the sport until a pretty late point. He may do it this year um, to win the whole thing. But it, it, it... I, I do generally like when guys are still kind of working through it and they're still contributing in a really positive way, particularly in a, in a well-rounded way. So different from somebody like Simmons to just kind of appreciate the stuff that they can do. I think Giannis, I mean, there was the video that I don't know if the Bucks put it out a day or two ago when he was at practice, kind of laughing at the idea, like, man, I've, I've airballed free throws. Like, you know, I can't shoot all these different things. I'm working through it. Like I have to get better at all those things, but I know what I'm bad at. And, you know, I'm trying my best. And, you know, he was laughing about it. And there's something about the idea that we just kind of assume that we want people to put on Kobe's face and and just be angry and mad and just determined and strong-willed and all these things. And it's like, okay, the guy is shooting pretty well from the line this series for him uh, and is has been pretty dominant. I saw some stat about how many 30-10 games he's had, um, you know, over the course of the postseason and only guys that have done that before are Shaq and – I don't know, Kareem and somebody else. I mean, he's he's just been dominant and maybe not dominant in the way that everybody wants him to look. And normally that entails taking over in the fourth quarter. He's done that in some games too, where he's been the only guy that can score in the fourth quarter. But uh, there, there's something to be said for appreciating what he can do and what he has done already. And, and, you know, we have not heard as much chatter about the wall, the wall being set up because of that variety in their offense, because Giannis has been willing to take that kind of screen setting role that doesn't mean he's not isolating ever and taking over the game. It just means he's more selective. So when, they, when they're in transition and the matchups are a little bit scrambled because there's a lot of cross matches, he just goes. And if you're not perfectly aligned, like the wall's got to be a wall. It can't be a little squishy dam. It can't be a mesh hat, which was what we called the bubble back in the day. Um, he's going. And then, you know, look, s- select half-court possessions, left wing against Capella, Nail against John Collins, pick and roll, and uh-oh, they didn't get under it. I've got Gallinari on me, and he's barbecue chicken. Like, he's making hay in those matchups. Collins has not done well against him. He looks very comfortable attacking Collins, just spinning, doing his thing, going right at him at the rim. And he looked more comfortable against Capella, uh, who's done a really good job on him. He looked more comfortable in Game 3. And we've seen this before, even with Al Horford two years ago in the Celtics-Bucks conference semis. If he sees, like a big man, remember Horford was like, is he one of the Giannis stoppers? If he sees that guy over and over again and begins to learn the rhythms and the footwork of his game, he just gets a little more comfortable. And he had a couple baskets on Capella, who, by the way, was benched late in the game. We'll talk, I don't know if he was benched like you're benched, like you're playing badly, but didn't play for essentially the entire fourth quarter, if not the whole thing, I can't remember. He looked more comfortable and made some good baskets. I'm like, the guy's just playing really, really well. And you're right. It doesn't look sexy. It doesn't look like 
clear out, let me do my jab steps and my footwork and hit a fadeaway, but it adds up to 30 and 15 or 30 and 14. Yeah, and and what I really like saying too, I mean, I guess we know this, and you know, I, I make this joke a lot on on Giannis with the idea that he he had one play last night where it looked like he was getting himself in position to take a finger roll, and then he just kind of does the go-go gadget arms thing where he just dunks from you know eight feet away or whatever it is. But the other thing too that aside from just the length, it is something that I think we kind of take for granted with him. We all remember when he, he looked like a, a baby deer, you know, in terms of the awkwardness as far as just how he was built. Um, and now he looks like, you know, a slightly miniature version of the Incredible Hulk. Um, but he, he a lot of times will get the ball underneath the basket. And I mean like underneath the basket where he's closer to being out of bounds than he is in position to shoot a layup. And he just backs guys out of the way and just all of a sudden ends up under the basket. You know, he obviously has all the length, but he also has so much strength to just push Capella or whoever else it is out of the way and get himself in position for layups that other people would pass the ball out of that situation. Like he does that three or four times a game. The rudest dunk in the NBA is when Giannis is under the rim, somebody's right on him, and he's just like, oh, I'm just taller and stronger than you. I'm just going to jump from a standstill, dunk, and it's the ball's going to hit your head because you're right under the basket, and I'm going to make my exaggerated mean face. It's so rude because, like, what am I supposed to do? It's impolite. The other thing that – by the way, speaking of his free throws, it was kind of funny last night to see Chris Middleton call timeout instead of passing the ball to Giannis when the, when the Hawks were intentionally fouling. It was like, we can, oh, I can't pass to him. I got to call timeout. The other thing that has swung this series is um, the Bucks' small lineup with Connaughton in place of Lopez is plus 17 in 23 minutes. Connaughton is plus 38 for the series. That's essentially the whole margin of victory. Wow. And what, what that gets at is because Trey has to hide often on P.J. Tucker, the Hawks can't play their big – the Hawks have been playing a lot with Gallinari, Collins, Capella, and they discovered in the first game – they can't play that lineup against the Bucks' small lineup because Trey's got to hide somewhere, and you end up with a big guy, Collins, on Chris Middleton, and that matchup has been a disaster. It was a disaster for a brief period last night in Game 3, and that's not, like, fatal for the Bucks. You just go regular. You play Gallo-Collins. You pick, you pick two of Gallinari, Collins, and Capella, and you play two of them with your normal Trey bogey herder, and that's fine. The problem is Trey's now banged up. Bogey's been banged up the whole series. Hunter's out. Reddish is back, but they've decided, I guess, they're not going to play him. They're just running out of bodies. Part of the reason they played Gallo at the three against Philly was that it was a good matchup for that lineup. Part of it was that they're trying to buy time on the wings so they don't have to, like, overextend the Trey Lou Williams, which is, like, close your eyes and hope for the best minutes. Um, And and they're just – and and that small lineup – Against both the starting five of the Bucks and that small lineup, and really those are the two key lineups here. Bryn Forbes, I think, played like seven minutes last night. It's They can't play that bigger group, or they could, and they could try to play zone, which has not really been in their DNA. And and those lineups, like that that Connaughton group closed the game uh, in game one, and, it clo- and they lost, obviously, and it closed the game last night. It's been really, really effective. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, last night was an interesting example, too, because Collins had the foul trouble. Um You mentioned Capella earlier and the idea of having him off the court. But also, and this is part of what I worry about, because one of the things I've been impressed with this series has been Gallinari, who was so hit and miss, um, both in the Knicks series and the Sixers series, if I remember correctly. Um, He's been really effective for them, um, including on some plays where I think there's no way in hell he's going to finish them. 
and then he scores on those. So you're getting kind of better than expected value from Gallinari so far, at least from an offense perspective. And he's he's reached in a couple times and, and come up with some really nice deals and stuff like that. Um, so it's difficult when you can't throw the three of them out there together. You've got to use two. Um, and losing games where Gallinari is playing as well as he's played, um, if we end up getting kind of the Jekyll Hyde version of him, you know, it just makes you wonder how much longer that's going to last. And like you said, as you're thin already rotation-wise, um, you know, they've done so much without Hunter for the majority of this postseason now. Um, it's just a little bit hard to imagine that if Trey if Trey's not anywhere near 100% in the next game or the next oh, it's a wrap. Games, it's a wrap. it feels like a wrap. A and that, it sucks because really that was going to be – I mean, it was a good finish anyway. Um, I'm sure Hawks fans probably didn't feel that way. I've never heard an arena go that quiet, by the way, last night. Like they were so loud – and it was almost sad because when Giannis did go to the free throw line at the end of the game, the people that were still left and the people that still had hope, I guess, were still doing the count, but you could like barely hear it, um, you know, at the very end of the game because they were just so silenced by what had happened and kind of shell shocked a little bit. But um, I mean, the series, I won't say looks completely even. You know, you were mentioning the the plus minus with some of those lineups there, without Lopez, with Connaughton in there, with Trey on the court, but. Um, they they feel relatively evenly matched enough, a lot more even than you would expect for, you know, teams that had that big of a win difference over the course of the regular season. Um, and so if, if Trey's not there, just the toll that it takes on kind of the, the relative evenness of the series just kind of blows as a fan, as a fan well, of the sport, it kind of blows. Well, you know, that small lineup is switching everything. And I said after game one, I know they got burned on the offensive glass, but I still like the way those possessions looked, excluding the rebounding. Well, they've cleaned up the rebounding since then, and the, and I continue to like how the switching looks. They've even switched with Portis at the five, and he's been pretty okay. That was an adjustment they made um, in game two. And the reason they're relying on Gallinari a lot is because against switches, they're like, well, can you try to post up Middleton? Can you try to post up Holiday? And he made some tough shots. And I really liked that Milwaukee, even as I was taking notes on the game, I liked that they didn't panic. They didn't start doubling. They said, if you're going to beat us with 20-foot turnarounds over Drew Holiday, then you're just going to beat us, and, and we're going to live with that. And they're going to need Trey Young. And if he can't do it, they're in trouble to go one-on-one -on -one against Portis and Tucker, whatever favorable – and Portis, by the way, is playing great. Whatever favorable matchup um, he, he has, and if they can't do that – then they're in trouble. And by the way, the counting, I don't know. I think an alternate counting strategy – they should just start shouting. I don't. There's no way to script it. Maybe they could. I mean, if you could script the Trey Young is balding chant, maybe you can script something like just start shouting random numbers. Like if you if, like like if when you're trying to do math and someone is just saying eight, 24, 20, you can't do the math anymore. Just throw him off by by random number sequences while he's at the line instead of counting one to twelve. Um, the other thing is both of these series, and we'll talk about Phoenix LA at the end. You know. It shows you the impact of, of consistently good defense can kind of stall out offenses, even offenses that are usually kind of fluid and have a lot of motion. And so I'm watching the Hawks. I'm like, man, they got – it's just so stagnant. Like there's a pick and roll and everyone else is just standing around. They need a little more spice to them. They need a little bit of that Phoenix flare screen, pin down, all that variety. And you're like, wait a second. Well, Phoenix hasn't really shown much of that since Chris Paul came back and – and Atlanta has that in their bag. Like, they ran a lot of that Spain action against the Knicks. They put Trey off the ball. Part of this is you just get tired 
And it's mentally exhausting when nothing works and the defensive team is switching and sniffing out everything you're doing. That said, when when um, when Lopez is in the game and the Bucks are playing traditional defense, I do think the Hawks need to have a little more a little more spice. Like the three guys standing around is not is not going to be good enough, um, and they just need sort of more variety, a more spice. Even and I think part of that is Trey. Like there was a play um, yesterday, I think when Trey had Herder on the right wing for that like release valve pass, like like Brooke came up pretty high. Just make that next pass, let Herder attack a seam and go. And even Herder yesterday had a, had a play where they stunted off of him in the corner because they're trying to show Trey Young bodies. That was the big adjustment in game two, right? right. We're going to show you some bodies. And Herder read it and cut back door and got a floater. Just like more stuff like that to spice it up. But it's easier said than done against against great defenses. And the Bucks threw it all. Through the ugly offense, through that horrible game three against Brooklyn, which they won, but it looked like they just had no idea anymore what to do. Their defense has remained great, and that's what's carrying them toward maybe the finals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were certainly going to have to adjust after the game one. I mean, game two was probably everything they could have asked for and more in terms of how they held down Trey. It was interesting to see Trey going off the way he was. I think that's the part that really stings if you're a Hawks fan is that he was going off um, even after the adjustments they'd made that worked so well in game two. Um, he, I mean, what did he have, 35 when 35. 35 when he went down with the injury? By the way, that injury is one I've seen before. I, I got to keep my streak alive of always mentioning my time on the Knicks beat with you whenever I do a podcast with you. Uh, Carmelo had an injury where he'd been just on fire. I think he was 7 of 10 or something. I went back and looked at the box for us. It was 7 of 10. Um, he turned his ankle during a game against Boston during the regular season um, where he stepped on a referee's foot. And then I don't remember if he tried to come back later that game and just wasn't effective, kind of like yesterday with Trey. Um, but then the Knicks went on to lose something like 10 of 12 or 11 of 13 or something. And I want to say that was when Derek Fisher got fired. They were 500 when it happened. And then they lost like every game for the next two weeks, essentially. And, Derek Fisher got fired, and yeah, it was it was a mess. But it, it it just sucks to see a team, a player, whatever it is, have it rolling like that. And again, to see the Hawks take the lead even once Trey went down, which you know it was encouraging enough to watch that. And then just to see Trey come out within a couple of minutes, just kind of realizing that he didn't have it. It was also interesting to hear Nate McMillan say that when he pulled him out, it was not even necessarily to like take him out because he didn't have it. It was to take him out for offense, defense, and to try to preserve him for offense. And then he just said, you know, it was really clear he just wasn't feeling right. But also, you know, at that point in the game, they were, you know, it looked like it was probably beyond repair and trying to get in terms of trying to get back into the and, game. And you know, I actually think the Bucks have been pretty diligent trying to hunt Trey Young. Like they're not wasting too many possessions when he's in a matchup where they can, even those Drew Holiday leakouts, which have been a huge problem in the last few games. I think part of the reason Drew Holiday is leaking out on those threes is. If I get back there first and Trey's the first guy back, he has no choice but to guard me and I can play some bully ball. Um, but PJ Tucker as a screener just isn't very threatening. And that's where Trey Young is most of the time. And so, but they're getting, you know, whenever he's on Forbes, they go right to it. Like they've done a pretty diligent job. Um, let's see if the Hawks can get back into it. I, I hope we get, I don't want two five game series. I want, I want, let's, let's have a little fun. But um, certainly looks to be favorable for, for the Bucks, and if Trey is uh, indeed compromised, um, well, that's 
that just sucks. It's life. It sucks. It's playoffs is just one injury after another. Everyone's injured. I'm afraid I'm going to get injured <laughs> going 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 to the bathroom at halftime at this point. I mean, I've there's five stairs up to my office, and my I've already tripped and fallen a couple times since I moved into this house. So it's it's it could happen at any moment, Chris. I I really hope you don't get injured. Um, if I see you on an injury report, then I'm you know I'll probably have to worry one for myself was, i'm just gonna sit in a chair if, if you get hurt because then that what does that mean for me if you end up getting hurt too so one of them was a bad a bad fall hurt my back a little bit okay i'm, <laughs> I'm old it's all over for me i'm old for the ones who get it done granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions plus their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer call or click Granger.com, or just stop by. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything, pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. Um, let's talk about, before we get to um, Sun's Clips, let's talk about Damian Lillard because there was a, I don't know what the right word for it is, Chris. Strange, uh, maybe report from Chris Haynes, who is very tied into Damian Lillard's camp. Um, that the fan backlash to the Blazers hiring Chauncey Billups as their coach, the backlash related to recently sort of rediscovered, I guess, um, uh, sexual assault allegations against Chauncey from 1997. There were never any criminal charges filed against Chauncey. There was a civil suit, which there was an out-of-court settlement. And I people just sort of forgot about it. I'm guilty. I forgot about it too. And it's been resurfaced now that Chauncey is going to be in the most high-profile role a coach can be in. And then... There was this, the Haynes story essentially said, well, the, the backlash toward Dame, specifically because Dame endorsed Chauncey Billups as a candidate publicly, on the record, to The Athletic and I think somewhere else, that may be a factor in driving Damian Lillard out of Portland. Now, I don't really want to get into how, what I don't even really know what that means. Like, I, I don't know Damian Lillard um, I don't know why he would ask out of Portland. I, I suspect the basketball would be reason the, the basketball situation would be the number one reason he would ask out of Portland if he ever does. If 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 let me repeat it, if Blazers fans, if he ever does. But that whole convoluted thing was convoluted, and I'm gonna leave it aside for now and just say to state the obvious, a Damian Lillard trade now in a year and six months is a seismic event. Uh, he has three years left on his deal, plus a player option for 24-25. He's th almost 31 years old. He's older than you think. Dame's older than you think. Um, all those years would would seem to say, well, normally we get to this point. And again, I'm not sure we're at this point, right? I just know that there's a lot of smoke billowing everywhere. Um Normally, we get to this point with stars and they have a year or two left on their contract. And they go through the whole rigmarole of, well, what team has confidence that he'll resign there? This and that. Dame's got three. 
that would lead you to the point where there's just supersized trade value, where Portland's going to want everything if, if this is a conversation that ever happens. The other complicating thing is, well, you've obviously got to trade into a place where they're ready to win, right? There's no point in him going to a place where you strip mine everything that's going to help him win immediately to make the trade happen. Um, you're also, if you're Portland, you're probably making that team good, at least in the short term, which devalues whatever draft picks you're going to get back. And you're going to want a heap of draft picks because if you're trading James, you might as well trade CJ. You might as well just blow the whole thing up. Uh, and then there's the fact that, well, Houston, the Pelicans, and the Thunder, at least for now, are all doing the hoard the draft pick thing. And I don't know the answer to this, but is there a diminishing returns to that strategy if three or four other rebuilding teams are doing it at the same time? Um, but I will say this, and this is not apropos of Damian Lillard. It's not apropos of anything. I've talked to a lot of front office people. I was in Chicago for the combine. The success of the Suns and a little bit less so the success of the Raptors two years ago I think is going to motivate teams to say, well, hold on. Why can't we be move, one move away? Like, why can't we be one big trade away from being the Suns? Like, the Suns are probably going to make the finals. Why can't we be that team? So I think this NBA offseason, yeah, there's not a lot of cap space. There's not a there's not a disgruntled star that we know for sure wants to be traded. There's no Anthony Davis or Kawhi or whatever like that. I think there's going to be some moving parts just for that reason. Even if it's just a big exchange of one guy for another because teams are going to say, like, why, why not us? Why can't we make a jump way up the standings? So, Chris, the last time you were on this podcast, we discussed fake Damian Lillard trades because this was already happening at the time. Portland had just gotten eliminated. There was a cryptic Instagram thing. People can listen to that podcast. It's from whenever Portland was eliminated. We talked about Miami throwing Hero and Robinson and everything into the mix. We talked about Boston throwing Jalen Brown out there. Again, these are all fake trades. I'm just making them up. Speculation, speculation, speculation alert. We talked about the Pelicans with Brandon Ingram as a centerpiece, which I think is one of uh, the ones that makes sense. We talked about Philly with Ben Simmons, and ooh, Ben Simmons' trade value has kind of fallen in the intervening months since that podcast. Philly still makes a lot of sense, um, but they now have to throw in lots of stuff in addition to Ben Simmons. Like, you're throwing in Maxie, you're throwing in Matisse Steibel, you're throwing in the picks, and you owe Oklahoma City a pick in 2025. We talked about the Knicks, who have cap space, and R.J. Barrett and Mitchell Robinson and Obi Toppin. We even alluded to the Pacers, who have a whole bunch of good players on decent contracts. We alluded to the Warriors, who have Andrew Wiggins as salary filler, James Wiseman, the number seven pick, a whole bunch of future picks. Woo! <laughs> and now we're back at it after a weird weekend of events. And by the way, I don't even know that we'll ever get to this conversation because I don't think Portland wants to trade Damian Lillard. It's over. If you trade Damian Lillard, it's over. You're going back to rebuilding. And again, they have the leverage of all these years left. And Dame is not going to be one of these guys, I don't think, who's like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna half-ass it or I'm going to I'm gonna pout and sulk. Like, Dame's a pro's pro. He's one of the best leaders in sports. So, Mr. Herring, what do you make of any of this? And is there any fake trade that you would like to bring up that we have not already brought up? I, I'm I, like I said before. I'm I'm horrible at fake trades. It, it is probably like the weakest part of my basketball writer resume. Probably, well, so I I don't have anything. But I mean, it it would be interesting. The whole Chauncey thing, by the way, is is really interesting because I think um, it does kind of raise a new question. I mean, people are going to talk about. I don't want to get too deep into this because I know it's a, a kind of complicated subject. But for all the people that talk about cancel culture, I don't think it's 
canceling anything because these are people that are already in the league. This conversation is kind of happening with the Jason Kidd stuff as well. Um, these are people that have high prominent positions in the league already, but I do think it kind of raises a question of to what extent does past conduct sort of play, should it play in decisions like these? Um, and even if it wasn't adjudicated through criminal sorts of proceedings or alleged criminal proceedings, what to what extent do we hold that against people that are in conversations for these jobs? Um, and we've seen this come up in other sports. College football has come up with certain things, um, whether certain people have reported certain things that they've been told or allegedly been told and whether they should be held accountable for things that they weren't even accused of doing necessarily. So I, I do think that part of the conversation is important. And I think that that's something that teams and, and organizations are going to have to kind of grapple with. Um, but putting that aside, I think one interesting thing that, to take note of, too, is, you know, we talked about Stephen Silas with Houston and how happy people were to see him get an opportunity as, you know, as a, a full-time head coach, permanent head coach for the first time, and then to see Harden leave town right after to give whatever sort of half-assed performance it was at the beginning of the season and then leave town and then kind of leave Stephen Silas with, you know, what the Rockets had after that. In the proverbial lurch. <laughs> In the proverbial lurch. Um, so, you know, Chauncey, even if it was Chauncey, somebody else, whatever, um, that job becomes very, very different if, if Dame's not going to be there. Like you said, you probably tear the whole thing down. And so, you know, again, setting aside, I know this is not the biggest question with Chauncey right now as far as what a lot of people are going to be concerned with, but the idea that it leaves that cupboard extremely bare and the whole tenor of that job changes on a dime for someone who at least before the last week was seemingly, you know, the apple of a lot of teams eyes, as far as, you know, different roles, we've heard about him being a GM candidate in different places. So all of a sudden his first job as a head coach becomes a whole lot different than what it was. Um, you know, I still think it's a difficult spot to be in uh, regardless, just as far as, um, you know, exactly what can you change about Portland that makes them competitive um, right now, which is what Dame would probably want if you're moving off of CJ or whatever else. But that's something that I think about uh, where Dame goes. Um, you know, like you said, there are a few teams that make sense, certainly. But, um, yeah, there's a whole lot of time left on this man's contract uh, for someone that is pretty much, uh, you know, a, a lock every year for first team, second team, all NBA at his position. Um you know, I don't know. I, I think a lot of people are going to look back at that Harden trade and say it better be more than that that you get back as far as all the picks, all the all the young players, everything. It's got to be the whole thing to get somebody of his stature that um, we've never heard anything negative really off the court about the guy before. Like you said, one of the best leaders in sports has not been um, really injured and banged up over the course of his career. I know he had one year where I think um, he got knocked out of the playoffs was the last year. Um or maybe the year before, whatever it was. But yeah, I mean, this is just going to be a boatload of whatever if you end up trading for him. But if that's what he wants, number one and number two, you know, um, then you get to the point of who's going to make the deal and pull the trigger and what all are they willing to give up because it's going to take a lot. The years thing is really interesting because it can cut both ways. The years remaining on his contract. Like if you're Portland, you're definitely flexing that as like, you know, again, I don't think Portland wants to trade. No, they, I don't of think there's been. Any, I don't. I don't think there's been any trade talks. I think what their preferred outcome would be is like, let's just get everyone to camp, be fine, and like we're a good team. Like I don't think they want to even entertain this right now, right? Um, but the years thing is something they would for sure flex and say, well, if you get them, you have them for all these years. And in theory, 
that opens up the market to every team. Small market teams, non-glamour teams. You don't have to fear him bolting in free agency. But I'm not sure that's really true in practice because the Portland Trailblazers are not going to send Damian Lillard to somewhere where he does not want to go. The Portland Trailblazers is again just put a proverb, just put an if over the whole thing. Okay, no matter what verb tense I use, just put an if over the whole thing. If it ever comes to that, the Blazers are not sending him to some place he doesn't want to go. They're not sending him to some market he doesn't want to live in or some team that's not going to be good enough to do anything when he gets there. To do so would dishonor what Damian Lillard has been for the Portland Trailblazers and for Portland community. It's just not something that teams do. Oklahoma City was not going to trade Chris Paul just anywhere. That was a mutual discussion about what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And it's just, it's it's not franchise suicide, but it's not a good look to, to alienate a player of that stature. So I'm not sure that it really, the years really matter because, you know, you take somebody like Harden or whoever you trade for on an expiring, Anthony Davis, whatever, you know when you trade for him, at the very least, let's be polite, we have a leg up re-signing this player. So the years are sort of a, a, a thing, kind of, maybe not. Uh, do you want to hear some some crazy ones? That are, This is just for fun. <laughs> Toronto, OGN and Obi, salary filler, including Chris Boucher, and all the picks I can throw. So I've got Van Vliet, Siakam, Lillard, whatever else is left over on the roster after that. I don't have any picks. I'm trading all my picks. Um, you know, the problem is if I'm Portland, I want Ananobi. I don't want Siakam. I want Ananobi more than Siakam because of the, the difference in age. Not super psyched about Fred Van Vliet. The Fred Van Vliet Dame thing is going to be a challenge defensively. Not sure that, but that's that's one. And Toronto's got a lot of assets. I don't, you know, we'll see. I'm just, again, these are just made up. Boston. We talked about Boston with Jalen Brown. I don't think Boston wants to trade either of the young wings, period, for anything. Um, but it would have to be like every pick, four first round picks, three swaps, Marcus Smart, whatever, whatever salary filler you want. I think I think Portland just says we want we want Jalen Brown. Want to hear some wild ones? Okay. Here are the two, here are the two truly wild ones that would never ever happen. Okay, I just want to, they're just fun to think. This about. is mental masturbation. Go ahead. <laughs> this is this the next two are pure <laughs> mental fantasy land. What if the Suns? Traded Chris Paul <laughs> and all the draft picks. All the draft picks. Chris Paul and like Bridges or something for Damian Lillard. Never would happen. Bridges is actually probably too good to include in that trade. Doesn't make any sense for Portland unless I'm getting all the picks. I want a young centerpiece, but it's just funny. This is the one that I actually think makes some theoretical sense, but will never happen. What if the Nuggets built a package around Jamal Murray and just said, hey, look, we can't wait for Nikola Jokic's prime. We can't waste a year wow. of Nikola Jokic's prime waiting for Jamal Murray to, to recover from his ACL injury. Let's roll the dice on this. Jamal Murray is the blue chip young prospect you want. We'll throw in a bowl bowl, a Zeke Naji, some picks, make you whole. You get to you get to stink for a year because Jamal Murray is going to be injured. We get to chase the title with Jokic. I just don't think the Nuggets are I, I just don't see that. Wow, but I love I, that idea though. Uh See, sometimes mental masturbation can lead you to fun places, Chris. Wow, that was a bad That sentence. was a bad um, sentence. <laughs> let's, let's just move right along. Please. <laughs> uh, obviously, obviously, Lillard, Jokic, you'd have some defensive concerns, all that. Again, I just think that's just, I just think that one's a fun, fun one to think yeah. about. I think Denver is just, they love Jamal. They have, Jamal is going to attack this rehab like a beast. 
I just think they feel like they're building something special with those two. They're not building. They have something special. I just don't think they're in a hurry to disrupt that just to take a take a better shot one year. It's interesting to think about. Um, Minnesota. Anthony Edwards and some draft picks and some salary. I got news for you, Minnesota fans. You're not getting in the conversation without Anthony Edwards' name being in it. Yeah. Okay? And I understand that, like – that's a 10-year age difference. Anthony Edwards was really good as a rookie. You can be patient. Cat's still young. D'Lo's still young. Just let it build. That's fine. I'm, I, and I, I'm fine with that, and I think that will be Minnesota's default stance. I don't know if Damian Lillard wants to go to Minnesota. He was clearly upset that they didn't promote David Vanderpool as their head coach. I just think theoretically, if I'm the Blazers and I ever, if, 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 get to this point, and I'm looking around for blue-chip young players— that's a place I place a phone call to because, well, you're probably worried about Cat getting a little antsy. This guy was the number one pick in the draft. Lillard and Cat is pretty awesome, even though I got to figure out what to do with D'Lo. Um, I just, again, I, that's just fun to think about. Lakers and Clippers, everybody wants to bring up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that Kyle Kuzma plus Dennis Schroeder sign and trade plus KCP plus like the one pick the Lakers could actually trade. Theoretically, they could trade their 2027 first and whoever they pick in this draft. Not getting it done. Clippers, same thing. Not getting like, it done. I, I just like, maybe the they're Blazers even make the playoffs with that group. Like they 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 were like trying to sneak their way in with Dame. Now, granted, they had a lot of injuries, so I don't want to overlook that. But yeah, that doesn't excite me at all. At I, all. I just now look. Nothing surprises me in this league anymore. And the players have enormous power to get where they want to go. I just don't see it. Yeah. Um, there was a, there was a team that everyone brought up yesterday, and that's Dallas because of the presence of Jason Kidd. Now <sighs> they owe a top ten protected pick to the Knicks, which they'd have to lift the protections on to free up the right to trade more picks. After that, is Porzingis plus a good role player that would have trade value plus Josh Green, the the Terry rookie they drafted, plus all the picks. Is that is that I know Dallas fans want that no to be a thing. No. It's hard for me to see. Yeah, it's not happening. I mean, Porzingis alone makes that I I, I don't know. Getting off his contract, I think, generally is gonna be hard, let alone in the in the midst of a no, that's that's not happening. Here's my wild Nick scenario, ready? Sure. You know you know who has the same agent as Damian Lillard? I don't even know who Dame's agent is. Uh, Aaron Goodwin. Okay. Uh, DeMar DeRozan. Ooh. What if what if we could work a little Damian Lillard trade, DeMar DeRozan free agent signing package deal to the Knicks? Again, just just going nuts. I'm just going nuts with this. Um I look, I everyone knows the Knicks are sitting there hovering, waiting for a star to pick them. You know, they're you don't think they're monitoring the Damian Lillard situation? You don't think they have their ears to the ground? They do. Uh, and again, they have all that cap space. It just depends what you think of R.J. Barrett. Because again, I, I know Knicks fans are going to say, well, can we keep Barrett? We'll give you Mitch. We'll give you Toppin. We'll give you Knox. We'll give you Neil Aquino. We'll give you all the picks. We'll give you all the Dallas picks. We have cap space. You're not getting in the conversation mm-hmm. without R.J. Barrett. You're just not You're you're just not getting there. And R.J. Barrett's fine. I think he had a really nice year. He was one of my finalists for, for most improved player. Um, but given their cap space... And, and the fact that almost no one else has cap space, the Knicks have the freedom to do some nutty things that no one else can do. So I'm just throwing ideas out there. I honestly, like, these trades are not great for Portland. None of them are. 
unless you're really psyched about rehabilitating Simmons, unless, unless you can get a blue chip asset that, that I don't really see being in play, I, this is the plight of, of Damian Lillard, of trading a player of this caliber, which is why I think the Blazers will and should be sort of hell-bent on making it work with him because he's he's that good. I mean, this is the dilemma every team faces. Did I miss anything? I mean, are the, my ideas are – these are just wild off the no, but path I, ideas. I like a is, couple of those. And, I mean, I think what you're getting at is the challenge that we see with a lot of these things that um, it's really, really hard to find equal value um, for a player of that caliber, particularly when they, they never – well, I won't say never get hurt. They rarely get hurt. They're – as consistent as all get out. Um, I mean, sometimes even when you're trading straight up, it's hard to get equal value. I mean, look back at the Chris Paul Russ trade, for instance. Um, <laughs> I mean, we've obviously seen what Chris Paul has done since then. Um, I, yeah, that trade, I said it on TV a couple weeks ago. In 20 years, someone's going to be sifting through the trades and be like, this this has to be a typo. What in the hell? The Thunder, the thunder, the thunder got picks in this, like... <laughs> For Chris Paul, I don't right. understand how that happened. Right. So stuff can always shift. And, you know, I, I think the, the concern about Chris Paul's injuries and aging and stuff like that was, was you know, it was easy to, to just like looking at it from a one-year perspective to think that Chris Paul was a better player than Russ. But the idea of the aging and everything else and injuries was fair to wonder about some of that. But um, it, it, it's always hard, even when you're just doing it straight up, but just to try to project the, the picks and, how many picks and yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's a perfect one. I mean, to me, the, the Jalen Brown one makes a lot of sense, but like you said, does Boston want to do that? Um, you know, I, I don't know, depending on what you're, you're going to keep on the back end of that roster. If you essentially go from basically you say, okay, we just lost Kemba and we're going to bring Dame into the mix and you've got Tatum. And you've got some some guys that are just bruisers in that lineup. You obviously have Marcus Smart. You have different guys there. You've got Horford. Like to some extent, it would make sense to me. I, I could see Portland wanting Jalen Brown if Boston's willing to get off him. Like to me, that's that's probably the one that mo- makes the most sense to me, just as far as a guy to build around. Like I said, the Jamal Murray one was really fascinating, an idea to me. But I don't think it would happen. Um, no, no. Den- Denver just doesn't operate that way. Would they? They have a guy in the door that they drafted. They love. I'm just saying. I mean, hell. I, 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 but I get it. And I mean, like, if we're gonna be real about it, we've had this conversation about Jamal before, and this is not to take anything away from him, particularly as he's re- rehabilitating. Uh, there's a difference between Jamal Murray and, and, and Damian Lillard. I mean, let's just be honest. Uh, for all that Jamal has been, and he's still young, and you know, hopefully he recovers from this and gets even stronger than he was before. Say, the, the the stat the stat he's not Damian Lillard, but the stat that really matters is he's six and a half years younger than right, Damian right. So, that, That's ultimately right. So, like I said, not to take anything from him. Obviously, he's young, um, and so you're hoping that he rehabs and he gets even stronger than what he was, and he stays on the trajectory that he was. But for right now, and now we're seeing kind of a new class of just superstars rise up in this playoffs, and just generally. Um, there's a chance that he is only an all-star once, that he's never, you know, a consistent all-star. And we're talking about that versus Damian Lillard, um, you know, and someone that, like I said, is all NBA basically every year now. So, I mean, there's a, there's a big difference there. The range is a big difference there. Um, so if you can do that, obviously you, you framed it, I think, as something that 
do you do it as kind of a one-year thing? Or maybe you were talking about from Portland's perspective of a one-year tank, basically, to not have Murray there. But, I mean, that's something that I think there's a big enough gap between those two players and maybe into the future as well for the next few years to where, you know, that's something where Denver might benefit long-term too, not just in the one year where they make a run for it while they otherwise would be essentially what they were this year where they're shorthanded. So I don't know. I It wouldn't happen. And like you said, it won't happen for the reason you said, but I like that one. But to me, the Jalen Brown one, if Boston's willing to seriously engage that, makes sense to me. TBD, but I'm dubious on that. Um, the biggest mystery in the league is how patient – New, who among New Orleans, Oklahoma City, and Houston is going to strike first with all the draft picks that they have? Who is going to look around the landscape and say, you know what, we just can't wait. We have too many picks. These other teams are trying to do the same thing we are. Let's jump in. And this is not even relevant to Damian Lillard. It's relevant to Ben Simmons. It's relevant to basically anything. And the biggest mystery of all is Oklahoma City because they have the most picks. They have the most stuff. They just went down in the lottery. Houston just got the number two pick. Houston, so Oklahoma City has one very good player in Shea Gilgis-Alexander. The Pelicans have one great player in Zion Williamson, and there's been reported rumblings that he's not happy there. All that, they would seem to have an incentive to try to make a jump now. They have one other very good player in Brandon Ingram, who I think would probably have to move in any trade of this nature, right? I don't know if they have enough just with picks. And you just don't know. The answer is, I don't know how soon any of these teams, how New Orleans would seem the sort of least patient in theory of the three. Oklahoma City is really interesting. They just have so much stuff. You know, I've had people around the league pitch them to me as a Lillard destination. And my response is, well, number one, am I am I giving up SGA? Like, I'm not that excited about that. That guy's awesome. And number two, Dame's 31 and we're so early in this. Is that, is he the right guy? Is someone of Simmons' age the right guy? Is neither of them the right guy? Are they so far away that they'll just sort of keep say, trading like two firsts to move up five spots and take a guy that we want, two more to move up seven spots and take a guy that we want? Are they just going to keep doing that? I I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I've had some people say to me, look, there's value in just getting the first guy in the door, even though it's maybe not the perfect age, not the perfect whatever. Like get somebody there because that can draw Another somebody. I just don't know if Oklahoma City and that market can operate like that. Right. But uh, Houston and I don't know would make a lot of sense for something like that, just because maybe it's somewhere people want to go. Um, I don't know. I'll put it this way: Zion's awesome. Dame is awesome. Um, you know, maybe people sign up to want to play with that. I, I would say on his own, as awesome as Zion is, and assuming you're you're losing Ingram in a move like that people aren't normally signing up to go play with young guys like that that haven't accomplished anything yet. So Houston would make some sense to me just because that's been a place that people have at least flirted with and wanted to go before and wanted to sign before. Um, I think they're all the tax incentives and stuff to live in, in Texas, but you know, maybe that makes a little bit more sense. But like you said, rebuilding around Dame when you don't have anything else in place um, I don't know. You got to go. Well, you got it, it, like, look, you want to say you have Shea, but I just don't think the Blazers are making that trade without getting Shea Gilders. I just I hate to say it, and this is again just pure speculation. I think the Thunder love Shea Gilders Alexander. He's awesome. He was in an All Star conversation before the injuries hit. Uh, I just don't see unless I unless they think Pokushevsky is a, a perennial yeah, All Star or something. I, I just don't. That's a while away. I just don't see it. Yeah. But it is it is going to be fascinating to see like which of these teams decides let's speed up or let's strike now while everything's kind of quiet. Let's just take a gamble. I don't know what it's going to be. 
You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Let's talk about the West Finals for a bit unless you have other damn things to say. No, go ahead. Um, two one. I'm sorry, three one. Suns after the weird low scoring, eighty four eighty slugfest of a win. Um, Paul George has had a rough shooting series. I think he's shooting thirty five percent and twenty seven percent from three. And look, I don't think Paul George has been a problem in this series. You know, he's averaging twenty seven and a half points, ten boards, six assists. Just got to make more shots. And he's under an enormous burden without Kawhi. He's having to create a lot out of nothing, particularly when they go small and they don't have Zubats on the floor to set screens for him. Um, but he's got he's got to shoot better or else they're not going to win. They're not going to come back from, from 3-1 down. Booker and CP have been ice cold the last two games and three really for Booker. And the Suns have ne- squeaked out a couple of them anyway. Aiton has been fantastic. Uh, whoo, Just so good. I, there's, they, like, I think, I think Chris Paul, and this is no shot at Chris. He's coming back from COVID, uh, and and it's tough to reintegrate a player on the fly, even after just a few games missed. I think their offense lost some juice when Chris Paul came back. Like you just didn't see as much of like the high flying Booker coming up from the corner around two screens, flare screens over here, backdoor cut over there. It was more give the ball to Chris up high. Slowed their pace with Chris has been a snail's pace. Slow pick and roll with Aiden. I just think they lost a little juice. But again, the Clippers, as I said before in the East Finals, Clippers defense has been awesome. And sometimes great defense just sort of squeezes, wrenches that creativity out of you. Like you don't have it in you to do it over and over again. But one thing that that they did well, Chris is better than maybe anyone ever at getting that switch on the pick and roll, at snaking around, crisscrossing with his screener, dragging Zubats with him over to the side. And DeAndre, for his part, is rolling hard. And why that matters is he's rolling so hard that they don't have time to switch back because if they do, he's already at the rim and there's too much of a window for the pass. And at the end of the game, their offense was basically Chris shoots, Chris misses, DeAndre gets an offensive rebound over a small player. He was really really fantastic. What are you looking for tonight in in game game five? For me... um... And my friend uh, Lawrence Murray used to be at ESPN. Now is at the Athletic. Has done a great job on the Clippers this year. Um, the Clippers just I and mean, they're not. I won't. I don't want to be too harsh here, just because of what you said. They're missing 
you know, a perennial MVP guy, uh, candidate and Kawhi. But they just, like you said, I don't know if it's that because they're squeezed so thin and that so much of it has to go through Paul George, they have these moments. And obviously there was a long moment just generally where, what was it, 14 possessions in a row, both ways that, you know, there was no scoring when they were just stuck on 71-70 for that long stretch. Um, but the Clippers have been really prone to these these droughts, and, and not just droughts, but stretches where there, there's no movement within their offense. And, um, you know, and where Kennard is out there and isn't touching the ball, it isn't even involved. Um, and it's been interesting. Part of the reason they've been so competitive in all these comebacks is that it, it, you can tell Ty Lue seemingly kind of lays into them at halftime says, we've got to move more. We've got to just do more. And then they come out and they're, they're running some offense and they're moving around and they're setting screens for each other. And they're making life a little bit easier for Paul George by doing that. So to me, can the Clippers just avoid getting out to another? It just kind of feels like they can't survive these slow starts. Um, you know, they've been down 2-0 in each series so far. It takes so much to kind of get out of that rut. And it takes a lot to get out of a 14-2 deficit, too, to start a game. So can, can they just kind of get out to a decent start here so that they're not having to play from behind and, and taking from what is already a very depleted level of energy? Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to watch some of what you just said with regards to Paul and Aiton and the movement there and how well can Zubach kind of stay up but also get back and help before the lob comes. Um, you know, they, they've done a terrific job on, on C. I think they're, I think their defense has been great. I think even Zubach has done a, a good enough job just eating up enough space yep. that Chris and Devin can't just ease into their sweet spots. It's, it's like a couple of steps out of their sweet spots. But the offensive rebounding, um, look, you're right about the Clippers. Like, they stalled out. And their shot, like Paul George's, Paul George took some terrible shots, and there was a shot clock violation where PG didn't seem to realize that oh, there was yeah. about to be a shot clock violation. But you know, you have to credit, and it's easy for us to say, "Well, where's all the cool motion offense that happens the first three possessions after a timeout when they've gotten some rest hard. and they've gotten a chance to talk to talk to the?" It's hard, and Phoenix is sniffing all that stuff out when they try to get fancy with split cuts and back screens like the Suns are all over it they know what's coming they switch it they don't make mistakes and on the pick and roll when Zubats is in the game and they run a bunch of pick and roll their help and recover the Suns is just so precise like nobody over helps they get a foot in the paint they follow the ball they're in sync with the ball shooters aren't coming open and Aiton is recovering to his guy at exactly the right time and you can see the Clippers searching and like we got we got nothing. And if you go possession after possession where you try the right stuff and you got nothing, you're tired, you're mentally fried, and you're like, I don't know what we're, what we're supposed to do against this team. The defenses in this series, both of them, I think the Clippers, you know, I, I mentioned before, the Suns, they haven't had as much of that sort of Phoenixy variety and juice in their game. And some of that is reintegrating Chris Paul. I think some of it is the Clippers defense. Like they came out all really well prepared. For all the off-ball trickery on the pick and roll that completely flummoxed the Nuggets, that, that that ended up in a parade of corner threes for the Suns, the Clippers knew what was coming. They knew how to help a little bit from the strong side, a little bit from the weak side, kind of throw people off. They knew what was coming. They knew the flare screens coming over here. They've just defended it really, really well. The defenses in this series have been awesome. It's been a grind. I, I kind of like 
I kind of like the occasional, I mean, we don't even get an occasional 84-80. I like a little defensive slugfest. Like, it's hard work. It's hard to score against these defenses. Yeah, no, I mean, one thing that you brought up, it, it, you asked me initially, what am I looking for tonight? I mean, one thing that really stands out to me, too, um, you mentioned it briefly, the offensive rebounding, which it seems like Aiton's just eating them alive and the, the you know, the Suns are just eating them alive. They're actually even for the series in offensive rebounding. It's 42 to 42. But I think the difference is Phoenix converted so many second chance points off the same. I think, I don't know if last game they had the same amount of offensive rebounds as, as the Clippers, but they had, they, they finished 13 to seven in second chance points the last game. So they were scoring twice as many second chance points as the Clippers were, even though they're basically rebounding, offensive rebounding the same, which that that's the big difference, particularly in a game where scoring is so hard to come by and the defenses have really figured out exactly what the offenses want, exactly where they want to go. So it just feels like a gut punch every time Phoenix lands a, a basket after, you know, an eight and put back or something like that. Um, no, it, it does. And, you know, the Clippers are trying, like, they're trying some stuff like they've started the, since game one. They've made sure that one of Jackson and George is on the floor at all times, staggering those guys. They're hunting Booker and trying to get shots over Booker. But that, the Booker's a decent defender. Like it's not like uh, it's not Angel Food Cake, Paul George attacking Devin Booker on a switch. And, you know, some of the Clippers lineups like they're playing Beverly a lot and man a lot for defense. And man has been just incredible pressure in the room like that guy has more points as the offensive rebounder on fast breaks like everyone else stops playing and here comes Terrence Mann in and by the way he better because Mikhail Bridges is becoming the next Danny Green in terms of just being incredible at transition defense he's are he's just making plays deflections play remember when Danny Green in his prime was like the most outrageous, you like, average at lots of stuff. That, man. Like, uh, he was like, the, he was, he became like Wilt Chamberlain cross with Akeem Olajuwon cross with Carl Lewis <laughs> in transition defense. And that's oh, what Mikhail Bridges is becoming. <laughs> but Beverly and Mann, the Suns are just going to let those guys shoot, even though Mann's been hot from the corner. And you can see them scrunching in off of those guys. So look, the, the Clippers are trying. The Suns are just, Suns are just really good. The Chris thing is interesting. Um, they're minus 12 with Chris Paul on the floor in two games, scoring 93 points per 100 possessions and just playing in molasses. And I wonder when they are able to sort of work themselves out of that. And, and you know, it, it better be soon. But, you know, you can sit here and talk about they should play Batum more, they should do this. I mean, the fact is Kawhi's out. And Marcus Morris has been dealing with a little bit of a knee thing. He looked He's looked a little better the last couple of games. They just don't have... You know, Kennard, they can play for offense, but they're going at him on every single possession right. on the other end. Like they, it's not like they have. It's not like Ty Lue's got aces in the hole. He's just waiting to play. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be cool, you know, especially after um, an 80-point performance or whatever they had last game. It would be cool to just see him go fuego from three again. You know, um, that's obviously helped them quite a bit in the last couple series, you know, when they've gone small and stuff like that. Um, is it as easy to do against Phoenix? I don't know. Is, is it possible? Sure. Um, you know, they've lost these games by so few points, uh, particularly the one, you know, that they lost with nine tenths of a second, which, man, it's just still really crazy to think about that play. I mean, it's- the Clippers are plus three for the series. Doesn't matter. You don't get a trophy for when it being plus if you lose the series, but they are plus three for the series, which is nuts. I mean, it, it, it really, you know, we can analyze and we should. Obviously, we have, um, you know, what Phoenix has done and how they've squeezed out a little bit more. But I mean, it's not outside of the realm of possibility they've shown that they can come back before. I just think it's probably a little bit harder to do here 
Um, it's hard to imagine a, a universe in which they win this series, come back to win the series without just going nuts from three the way that they did a little bit during that Utah series. And they missed some good looks. And by the way, we should have mentioned in the Hawks-Bucks section, the Hawks missed three wide open threes in the last three and a half minutes of that game that would have been any one of them goes in and it's a different game. And you're right to mention the offensive rebounding numbers aren't that bad uh, for the Clippers or even. The team that's really killing people on the offensive glass in this round is Milwaukee. Yeah. And the way they're doing it is P.J. Tucker is shoving Trey Young out of the way and being like, you're going to hide on me. Maybe I can't hunt you this way, but I can hunt you on the offensive glass. And Pat Connaughton's flown in for some second chance points um, in, in those places. Can I just give a shout out to Mike Breen for a second? Uh, please, if it's going to have anything to do with the Kawhi Leonard thing the other day, I'm still laughing at that. All time great. That was, I, that was the, if you want to, <laughs> you want to know why Mike Breen's in the Hall of Fame. He knows the game. He's incredibly smart. He's so good natured. He's always like he's always trying to emphasize how much fun it is to be courtside at a game, and it just seeps through your screen. The fun he makes it more fun. But that line when the Clippers were rolling. And he sees on his monitor that they've cut to Kawhi Leonard, who's like, might as well be watching PJ Masks with his kids or something. Like it's not it's like he's not even at the game. And he just says, deadpan, Kawhi Leonard going crazy. <laughs> I legitimately almost spit water all over my laptop because it was deadpan. It came out of nowhere. And the best part about it was neither Mike nor Jeff nor Mark followed up on it they you could tell they wanted to because it was so funny and you could hear a little chuckling they just let it sit and thought everyone got it everyone knows it's funny it was perfect as it is just leave it alone it honestly might have been my favorite nba broadcasting moment and i don't even know how long it was it just i i love mike it was so good I, I love the shout out because I, I don't know anybody that didn't laugh at that and it was just you know so many things i thought about in that moment you know, the whole Kawhi fun guy thing that was, what was that, a year or two ago? And it's like, that was the epitome of that. So, I don't know. I love Mike. And the fact, when you know him personally, too, it's just, he couldn't be happier. He's one of those guys that I think everybody just legitimately loves. And, uh, you know, the announcing is part of it, but just an even better person. He's just great. The best. Just a couple more Clippers thoughts. They're plus 25 with Zoo on the floor, which means they're getting killed in the in the non-Zoo wow. minutes. I don't know how much of that has to do with Zoo, but I will say one thing I like that Phoenix did is when they put Marcus Morris at center, the Clippers do, they put him on Aiton or even Saric, and they don't want to switch. They're playing a traditional drop defense with Marcus Morris. The Suns, and Payne was smart about this, coming back from his own ankle issue. He said, you know what? We're not going to overthink this and hunt for switches. If you're dropping back, you don't normally do that, Marcus Morris, and I don't think you can do it well. We're just going to run pick and roll. And they got good looks off pocket passes to eight, and it's, I thought that was really smart. Um, and we'll see what, what, the, what the teams bring. But, you know, I hope we, uh, I hope we don't go through two five-game series. But we still got a good finals coming up no matter who it is, and we will be leaning on you, Mr. Herring, for some good analysis. What, what can we pump up? What do you got coming up at, at SI.com? Uh, I don't know that I have anything – too, too big coming up. I don't know. I haven't even figured out what I'm writing this week. I think partly because of what you just said about these series could be over really soon. And so I'm, you know, might have to pivot to just thinking about final stuff for now. But, um, wow, I'm blanking on what I even wrote last week, to be honest with you. I don't know. That makes me feel better that you're blanking about what you wrote last week because I do it all the time. I'm like, wait, what's so bad? We're getting so old and we're not old, Zach. This is awful. But, Anyway, yeah, I'll just be looking ahead to the finals. Not, I don't even think I'll have anything big this week because it's 
kind of that weird in between spot where these series feel like they fundamentally might be over. But, um, but you know, if they are, you've just got to pivot to the finals. So hopefully something fun in the finals round. Chris, you're the best. It's always good to see you. Stay safe out there, and maybe I'll see you soon. Look forward to seeing you really soon, Zach. Thanks for having me. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.